Dear audience, welcome to episode 2 of Thinking Psychologist. If you have reached this far, episode 1 caught your attention. And uh, I mean, episode 1, just to recap, what did we talk about? We talked about uh, with Professor Paul, how there's a false self inside us, how our ego is dominating us, and what are the tools, tips, and the techniques that we can utilize to get away from that mental prison that we are in. the molestation of our mind which uh, which our false self constantly does to us is actually limiting our potential so with with that in perspective in continuing the the good feedback that we had received from all all of you uh today we have a, a really really interesting personality with us his name is rob rob satles and he's an expert ui designer from redding united kingdom he practices theories of graphic design including color theories and layouts as well as marketing based studies like consumer behavior rob is expert in designing a lot of new stuff as well as comes with a, a very radical thinking that all the decisions that we make in life are are mostly to base bias towards our emotions and it's already been done by our subconscious mind and all the calculations and the radical thinking that we do is is mostly flawed and is just a justification with that i would like to welcome rob to the show hey rob hello thank you for having me could you give our audience a brief introduction about yourself please yeah so um i i studied graphic communications you know how to communicate with symbols i suppose and which is quite emotional a lot to do with branding and that sort of thing and i studied that about 20 years ago and then i worked as a graphic designer for a while and over time i started moving more into like digital product design designing apps and of course building apps as well so i've always had a, an interest in design obviously that was my sort of first really real sort of career my first kind of area of study and i was very interested in psychology right from when i was a student I was reading a lot of books about behavioral psychology and I think design and psychology are very very closely related to design a product for someone even if it is just the visuals of how it looks you need to really understand people and how they work and really behavioral psychology is what tells us about that and I also think I also think that one of one of the things that really brings them together and makes them quite similar as well is that they were both both design and psychology originally in in Europe psychology obviously originated in Austria and Germany and design originated in uh, Scandinavia and Holland both of these disciplines in Europe were forms of philosophy whereas in in North America they've sort of become forms of science that they they thought was very very logical and of course you're you're if you're if you're testing a human you're trying to do an experiment to test a human there is a human involved so you're never going to get a scientific result because there's always some kind of influence where your results going to be a little bit affected and if you're designing for a human then you're not designing for a rational person you're designing for this very emotional person who's not going to do what you rationally think they will do so I think there's a very strong similarity between these two two disciplines and it it'd be good for people to at least consider that they might be forms of philosophy and not forms of science and any yeah. I'm I mean I I love reading all these different psychology experiments and one thing I particularly like is when you read the experiment where they tried it again and got completely different results <laughs> you know, because yeah. just just asking the questions in a different way or just someone dressed different talking to them just has such a massive effect on people right rob you have worked you know in in various parts of the globe as well in various numerous organizations you know what has been your experience working with all the uh, you know other different cultures um, you know affecting the way the people are taking decision in various organizations as a yeah so i've done a bit of i've done like freelance design work i've done consulting i've done uh working in big companies and small companies I've I've changed to lots of different places I've done managing and actually uh, a while ago I was I was a teacher as well I taught English in South Korea and <laughs> I I think in a way I think that's like a psychology degree because you learn so much about people from having them in a classroom where you ha- can sort of 
you know, control things to try and improve the classroom. You, you very quickly learn as a teacher that maybe the idea of an introvert and an extrovert, for example, might not be entirely true because they seem to change just because they're sitting in a different seat, for example. And I've noticed similar things with working with office workers, with working with a team, with how a manager works. In fact, one of the first things I noticed when I stopped teaching and went back to, to office work is that you're sort of always working with children, just some of them are a bit bigger. <laughs> and they're all and, and you very quickly realize that that you know the adults with a suit in the office is pretty much as emotional and irrational as those students so actually being a being a designer in a, a big company or in a small company it's not just about the psychology of trying to understand how your customers are thinking it's also about the team and how you interact with them mm-hmm. and how decisions are made as a group right perfect you know now you know thanks thanks for that you know overview and your understanding we will now try to drill deeper into today's topic of uh, you know what we want to discuss today is about rational decision making is flawed and the decision that we make has already taken by our subconscious mind and we are just giving justifications to you know why did we take such a just such a decision to give you my personal example you know when i was purchasing my house this this particular flat you know which was in my proximity i i i liked it really really you know too much and my wife wasn't really you know she said that oh, we're going to look for more explore more explore more but subconsciously you know i just wanted to buy this house and then you know i and you know got her interested and we bought this house and now i explain that why this house is the best although you know you see around there are numerous houses which have got a much much better features and facilities and amenities but you know, this this somehow says that you know although you compare a lot of different rates and but but still our uh, our rational uh, rational thinking somehow falls short to short to the the emotional thinking right you know what mm. are your thoughts on that and you know in your experiences uh, certain uh, certain psychology things that you have been doing across the globe how how do you reflect on that well f- first of all i'm curious like how irrational your house is <laughs> do you have a water slide or <laughs> why was that your go-to example that's interesting <laughs> especially in these crowded cities you don't get a backyard area so this was on the ground floor i had a big backyard area and um, the next plot was clearly empty it's going to be remaining empty so a lot of sunlight air and a lot of space to play so that was the that's that's me giving a rational you know Yeah. Well, I actually think something like buying a house, you want to intentionally be a bit irrational, a bit emotional because it you're it's going to be your emotional self that's going to be living in it. Mm-hmm. It's it's very very rational to think about how the market's going to change and stuff, but you, you know, you have to enjoy your life whilst you're in it. So it it should be quite an emotional decision. But I think what's good first is to sort of explain what rational means because I don't think it's that well defined a word in itself which is kind of a bit strange um but i think when we talk about something being rational we're pretty much just talking about it not being emotional we're saying we made a decision without emotion we used past experience we used facts we used data we used anything else like that and sort of suppressed any kind of emotion so i would say you know people often joke about donald trump being quite uh, quite irrational and what they mean is he he might make a a very sort of sudden decision as a response to to something that upset him uh he he a few weeks ago he signed this uh this thing to try and change the laws on the internet because he was upset that twitter fact checked something he did and almost straight away he's he's signing yeah. some new new law to try and change it and you can straight away see that that wasn't because some new data had come out or some new facts or or any sort of new experience it was entirely uh, to do with like an emotion inside him and then you've got the word logic which isn't necessarily quite the same as rational it's more like how we make those decisions um we we perhaps a a scientist or a mathematician will have a a logical process to to reach their decisions and although it's very hard for us to to be rational human beings as we're going to talk about for most of the next the next hour um 
we have systems in place that we use to try and force ourselves to be rational. So a, a scientist, and, and if you are a scientist and you, you need to sort of test something, maybe a new vaccination for, for a, a virus like we have right now, they need to be quite, in, you know, have sort of trust their intuition and trust their gut a bit with deciding what to test. But then the process by how they test it is a logical process to make sure that that, that sort of scientific process is rational. So a scientist needs to both be a bit irrational whilst deciding what to test and then possibly a bit rational um, when when figuring out how to test it. So so like logic is the process we put in place to try and force ourselves to be rational. But the reason we need to actively do that sometimes, and I, I don't want to sort of start saying rational thinking or rational arguments or rational logic is is bad. <laughs> of course not. Of course, it's incredibly useful in the right context. But we also need to be aware that we just aren't rational. So there was uh, experiments done by the neuroscientist uh, Antonio Damasio, where he realized that working with patients who couldn't feel emotions, they also couldn't make decisions. And however mm -hmm. hard you try, there is no such thing as making a decision without emotion. There is always... Are you talking about the split brain experiment that happened in 1970s, maybe? Uh, partially, yeah. So so there was, of course, these experiments about um, the, the sort of split brain where we realized that, that our brain doesn't necessarily all the parts communicate with each other as well as we think. And, and sometimes you can uh, communicate to them separately without getting into too much detail. Um, where where you ask the the visual part of your brain to make make a decision um, and then ask the person to rationalize why they had chosen something choose choose one of these two pictures uh, ask their rational part of their brain i'm not making any sense here <laughs> My, one one that i really enjoyed was they they had a study where they were showing men pictures of two women and asking which one of the two they would like to date. And they would show them a big list and say, from these two, who would you like to date? Uh, this isn't entirely to do with split brain, but then sometimes they would use a sleight of hand trick to swap one of the photos after they'd chosen. Mm -hmm. And so that they would then be presented with the picture of the one they had chosen and asked to explain why they chose that person. And they'd be like, well, they look really <laughs> friendly or something like that. But yeah, because yeah. they'd switched the picture out, the person's brain would just try and rationalize the decision, which they hadn't really made. <laughs> <laughs> so you mean to say that our, our brain makes up those stories in our head of why did we choose something? Yeah, so essentially there's the, the, the theory is that we kind of post-rationalize. We'll make a decision based on emotions and then we'll figure out an explanation afterwards. Mm -hmm. So our, our rational thought, our rationale for why we chose our house, for example, we can come up with all kinds of reasons. We can come up with all sorts of, well, it's near the main road and it's going to go up in value and all this sort of stuff. But ultimately, we made the decision based on emotion before we ever got hold of all those uh, logical, rational reasons, so to speak. So I actually, um, I, I had a, a JP Morgan quote I thought was quite good, where he says, a man always has two reasons for doing anything. They have a good reason and the real reason. And when you're dealing <laughs> yeah. with, you know, obviously in his case, business or, or design or something, you have the fact that people will tell you why they did something, but that's not actually why. So obviously, with if you're designing products, you're, you're interviewing people a lot and asking them about their behavior. And you, you kind of always need to be aware that they're not actually telling the truth most of the time. <laughs> they're often, they have behavior and they're, they're trying to rationalize why they do things. Uh, I think it's... I think it's probably quite a wide area of psychology and I don't think we should sort of talk about it for the whole time but you know generally the rule is that your your beliefs follow your behavior rather than your behavior following your beliefs you you act in a certain way and then you try and explain why you acted that way and you, you come up with some some very uh, non-emotional very reasonable sort of explanation when mm -hmm. in reality you generally do things for for quite an emotional reason 
And I think it's important to, to think about this because it re relates to all kinds of decision making. And you, you want to be aware that, that most of your decisions are irrational so that you can try and look for kind of logical systems to, to maybe get away from that, but also to, to know that actually your gut instinct can be really, really smart sometimes. And so you, you want to sort of trust, trust that gut instinct, that, that inside feeling. So we, the, the other day we talked about this, uh, this experiment in, in mm -hmm. universities with the two, two paintings. And I, I've talked about this a few times. It's on some of my course and I've, I I've sort of spoken about it in a few presentations I've done already. I'm getting very used to talking about this. But there was an experiment in uh, universities in the US where they had posters by Piet Mondrian. And Piet Mondrian's mm -hmm. a very abstract artist, you know, got very famous abstract art with big colourful shapes on the canvas. But his earlier work, he was quite figurative and he drew trees and, and that sort of thing. And so they went to these campuses and they had posters of one of his abstract paintings and then one of his earlier figurative paintings. And they said to people, you can take one of these home, put it in your dorm room, whatever you want. And most people took the abstract painting. And if you ever saw it, you would recognize it. It's called composition number two, and it's got big yellow squares and red squares and blue squares, and it's very bold and colorful and simple. Most people chose the abstract painting, but then they went round to universities again and, and had the two posters and said, you need to tell us why. You need to give us the, the rationale. But because they knew they had to give the rationale before they made the decision, it changes the decision. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, then people are choosing the, the figurative painting of a tree because it's much easier to talk about. Or that's the, you know, we can only speculate, yeah. but it's much easier to talk about. So it actually changed the decision people made because they had to explain why. Because they knew they had to post-rationalize, it affected their decision. And so then they go to a bunch but, more but universities. In the, in the first in the in the first scenario that you know once they were given a chance to pick up you know any painting they were picking up the abstract so, so picking up the abstract painting does it have any relation to you know their emotional attachment to the painting or you know they didn't have to explain it or it was just easy to do that or why why would they choose it uh, in in my professional opinion as a designer it's because you can people think design is very objective or they think aesthetics is very objective they think that some people like some paintings and some people like other paintings but it's actually not as objective as you'd think it's it's um mm -hmm. i mean it's not as subjective as you'd think it's it's pretty well defined what people will like looking at and what they won't like looking at and the one of the the things that people enjoy to look at is actually very simple shapes with very simple color palettes and, and so you'll notice that design has over time become much more more simplified as we've learned more about how people perceive and what they like uh, and this sort of mm. thing. You look back at the Victorian era and everything had had flowers all over it and stuff. And now a design will be, you know, like Apple. Everything's very, very simple, very clean. And, and if I had to try and guess why they would choose an abstract painting over a figurative painting, it's just because it objectively looks better to us. We like yeah. we like lots of white and clean space with not too many colors. We're very simple people, really. But it's it's easier for us to perceive, supposedly, because it's easier to perceive. We like to understand our environment. We like to be able to understand where we are. And so too many complicated shapes around is perhaps unattractive to us. But then they go back to the universities with the two paintings and they say, you can take one of these posters home, but you have to tell us why you didn't want the one that you're leaving. <laughs> and then what's interesting is then they choose the abstract painting. And so the, the speculation, at least, is that mm -hmm. it's easier to talk about a picture of a tree than it is to talk about an abstract painting. And right. so you ask someone to post-rationalize their decision, they're going to talk about what's easy. You're and right. I've, I've tried this, like I said, I've used this example for a few talks now, and I tried this and then I got people to tell me why they preferred one of the two paintings. And mm -hmm. both the people that told me chose to talk about the tree and not the abstract painting. So the person who chose the tree explained they like the tree better, they blah, 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 blah. But the person who chose the abstract painting said, I chose this one because I don't like the tree because it's too complex and you know all this sort of stuff. So <laughs> right there as I'm using the example, 
people are both talking about the figurative painting. And this is, um, you know, this is a big thing with design, with business, and probably with our life a lot, is that if you get people to make a decision and they're going to post-rationalize, they're going to talk about what's easy as well. They're going to talk about what's very easy for them to talk about. And if you're a product designer, you're interviewing sure. customers, uh, one thing that we get people to do a lot maybe is interview people about their mobile phones because they're so personal and, and they've got so many different reasons why they chose one rather than another. And people will give you all these uh, ridiculous post-rationalized reasons for why they chose one <laughs> one over another. Um, but often they'll talk about things that, that are, are easy rather than things that are, are even really get, getting to the heart of the heart of the issue. Um, so yeah, so I mean, essentially, we post-rationalize and we talk about what's easy. <laughs> right. Thinking about, you know, I'm talking about, uh, you know, we generally try to talk about, uh, you know, things that are easy to see. You know, coming from episode one, Professor Paul Klein also spoke about the same thing, you know, we want to get closer to the pleasure and move away from anything and anything that you know brings us closure to the pleasure we want to get closer you know we want to speak more about it that somehow makes sense yes any any of the great examples that you would like to uh, position into the, the thought process why rationalization is again not a uh, not a good thing to look at when it comes to design aspects so so sorry you did break up a little bit there but you're asking me about how people like to get closer to the pleasure and further away from the from the pain it, it was that. Yeah. And um, I actually I, I think I think there can be a bit of a problem with how we're we're designing things this this you know, specifically looking at this now. We we're spending so much time looking at um you know, user experience is the big buzzword of the last twenty years, really. Everyone wants to look at what people's experiences are and try and optimize for their experiences. But sometimes the things that people uh, think they want in the short term uh, can be really bad for them <laughs> and actually in, in in some ways the the way that we've optimized uh, social media and how that works and all that sort of stuff to fulfill these very very short term move towards the pleasure move away from the pain kind of scenarios uh, is potentially quite quite bad for people and quite damaging <laughs> and I think it's 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 interesting because we're getting into a situation where designers have got to really think about, or, well, co corporations as a whole really need to think about exactly how much they want to take that on board. Um, you you can if you were designing a restaurant, you can just design it with the most unhealthy menu possible, and you're definitely going to make lots of sales because people love coming in and eating that stuff. <laughs> is is that the best way to do business? And of, of course, if you're decide, making decisions for yourself and thinking about what you want for lunch, you've got to really be aware of that too. Um, I was watching, um, I don't know if you know, I think his name's Martin Spurlock. He wrote that, he made that documentary years ago called Supersize Me. No, so this, I'm a total. <laughs> it's, it's a documentary where he, he eats nothing but McDonald's for 30 days. He's a very healthy guy, but he decides to see mm. how it will affect his body. And then uh, he just released like the second part of the entry recently where he opens his own chicken restaurant in, in the US. And he's speaking to all these people about marketing and health and stuff. And they're saying, oh, actually, the way people think about healthy eating has changed. All these marketing companies are saying the way people think about it has really changed. Now people want something, and they were pretty much saying they want something where it's really unhealthy, but there's maybe just one thing, and they just put a slice of avocado in the burger or something. Yeah. <laughs> people can justify it. And I think that's, in a way, that's exactly what, what JP Morgan was saying about there's two reasons you do think, the, the logical reason and the real reason. You, you want to buy the healthy burger, but really you want to be eating a really unhealthy burger. You just want that justification to your, your like, your rational mind by having that slice of avocado in there and saying it's healthy. Great. This, you know, this kind of a thinking process about the emotional thinking versus the rational thinking has been has been coming out from ages, right? Benjamin Franklin was sort of the a big propagator of this thing on a similar line. I had heard. Um, yeah. So. 
Uh, Benjamin Franklin's kind of, uh, I suppose he's sort of seen as the like, the rebirth of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. He's kind of one of the the, the forethinkers in that whole area. And um, the reason he comes up when people are talking about about rational thinking is because of something called Franklin's Gambit, which is that mm -hmm. Frank, uh, Benjamin Franklin was a vegetarian, but not always. And the reason is, ties in perfectly with the healthy food aspect. The reason is because he had all these logical, rational reasons for why you shouldn't eat meat. But then if he smelled meat, suddenly like his his rationale would change. Suddenly he would, one, one argument would be way more important in his mind and one would be way less important just because of the situation he's in and what he can smell. Uh, the, the thing is, you can sort of make a, a relatively rational argument for anything if you want and you see people doing this in, in offices all the time they're very good at two people find rational arguments that oppose with each other and they'll spend the next like six months just saying their argument backwards and forwards <laughs> we, see, we see it in politics all the time at the moment as well but uh, Benjamin Franklin was talking, you know, later in his life when he kind of realized about all this, he said about how uh, he had noticed that it was very convenient to be a, a rational person because you can decide what you want to do and then you can come up with a reason for it. So, you know, even back in the 18th century, uh, Benjamin Franklin very quickly noticed that, you know, you can sort of use use rationale to 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 justify the thing that you were going to do anyway whether it was eat meat or not eat meat <laughs> you can find a rational reason and of course he's he's the sort of slightly more new age version of a, a, a rational thinker or someone who was trying to push it and even he didn't necessarily get fully behind it but really it was like aristotle originally back in ancient greece who who brought us rational thinking rational decision making and it, it makes sense to come from ancient greece because that's where democracy first started the first time that people had serious decisions to make um mm -hmm. and aristotle actually himself said that you shouldn't be using rational for decision making you should be you know it shouldn't be the thing that you use to make a decision you should be using a whole range of thinking tools and aristotle gave us uh, rhetoric, for example, which is kind of the the, the art of persuasion, and he mm -hmm. believes there's other scenarios you should be using that. But one scenario that he says you can't use rationale for, and we've all sort of said it and thought it since, is if you're trying to make any kind of imaginary decisions about the future, like how things will be in the future, you can't really rely on any. You know, you can't get data for that because all data exists in the past. You yeah. can't use your past experiences beyond a point because they all exist in the past. And so for, you know, something like design or any sort of things to do with innovation or any life decisions you're trying to make, then uh, rational thinking's going to be very limited help to you and you shouldn't really be uh, using it for making those kind of decisions. I suppose something like where people write up the pros and cons of a of a decision and they say let's write down all the pros and all the cons to try and help us identify uh what's the correct course of action um i guess you know that is like a logical tool that you're trying to use to make your decision but if you're deciding something for the future then something that aristotle himself specifically said you can't really can't really do that you can't you can't prove things that exist in the future using using uh, rationale really and I actually think, um, I think, uh, I think politics is a really interesting one. I know it's super boring, so I won't get into it either. But one, mm -hmm. one reason I think it's interesting is just thinking about that example of someone going in a, a burger shop and getting the burger with a slice of avocado, so they can justify both sides. Is that everyone has these very rational arguments for voting, but when it comes to the actual bit where you go into a voting booth and put your cross on, no one knows. It's sort of secret, so there's no there's no advantage in being <laughs> rational at that point so yeah. there was you know twice recently because in the uk we voted to leave the eu and yet all the polls said we were going to stay and then in the us <laughs> shortly after everyone thought trump was going to lose the election but then he won oh, right. and in both those cases they were sort of the 
emotional option. So it, it kind of makes me wonder how many people had very, you know, very rational sounding arguments to vote one way, but once they get in the booth, they can cross whatever they want. So <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an interesting one because it's one of the few scenarios where you you don't have to worry about being logical because it, it, there's a, a very real possibility that we might be logical just so we don't look stupid in front of other people. <laughs> there's a uh, there's a, a book that came out last year by Rory Sutherland. He works for an agency in London called Ogilvy. And he brought out this book called Alchemy last year. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. Every sort of bit of it, I really recommend it. Really good for exactly this sort of thing. And, and he had this whole argument about how in offices, nobody gets fired if they make a rational decision or they say we should do something rational and it turns out they're completely wrong. Because then they can be like, well, it was, you know, everyone would be like, oh, that was unlucky. They had a rational decision and it turned out to be wrong. Well, but how unlucky for, of them, you know, like, <laughs> if, in, if, you know, they'll base it on data and stuff. And it doesn't matter. And I've seen this in all sorts of companies. It doesn't matter if the data makes no sense at all. But if you base a decision on the data, then you're being rational. So it's fine. <laughs> even, even if the data is wrong and your interpretation of the data is wrong, you're being rational. So it's fine. But then. There's no advantage in an office in being irrational because if you come up with an irrational decision or you make a, a rational um, suggestion and it turns out to be right, then you were just lucky. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. So everyone just sort but of goes you, up. You have, you have to base your decision on something, right? You Sorry? Know, the decision needs, that, um, for, you know, in a corporate world, the decision needs to be made on something. You know, and you know, uh, for that, the management to have a confidence, they need to see the data, and that is where the rational decision making comes into the picture. And you know, and at least you know, you have to hit the arrow somewhere. At least where the data they think there is, and you know, uh, we famously work on an example. You know, where it's about uh, you are standing in front of a big ball, and you're given five stones, and you have with five stones, you have to figure out, you know, uh, is there water on the other end or not. How are you going to do that? So then, you know, different people will come with different ideas. You know, I'm going to, you know, use a sort of catapult and calibrate with an angle saying that I do not throw the ones, one stone at one point and the other point. And a lot of rational, you know, thinking and the algorithms come into picture when the decision making is being done. Uh, yeah, very, very similar to your point. Coming back to the alchemy. Yeah, you, you were stating something there. Um. Oh, no, really, I was just sort of f finished that point up. I just find it fascinating how um, if you're in an office and the more the more corporate and bigger the company, everyone sort of has to pretend the world's run on rational thoughts. We, we kind of have to pretend that whilst we're at work, even if we know it isn't, because if we're irrational, like, you know, like I said, you might get fired. So you have to just pretend to be rational. If you run a team and someone on your team has been irrational, you're like, no, you can't do that because then I look bad rather than caring about the, the final outcome. But then as soon as people leave their offices, they, they go and get in their like ridiculous, ridiculous sports car. They're, they're, you know, <laughs> their bright yellow sports car, which is totally unpractical and just uses up all this gas and stuff. And it's just this massive expense and it's just a tool. And it's, it's clearly this emotional toy for an office worker. But nobody can, nobody can admit to that emotional part of themselves whilst they're in the office and the second they leave it's all about the emotional part of themselves the, the house they choose or the car they choose and everything but whilst whilst you're you're sort of in the office you have to pretend that doesn't exist and re recently there's been a lot of people interested in, in doing design thinking workshops and, and trying to incorporate design thinking to try and uh, bring about um, this idea of, of rather than trying to come up with a rational argument trying to figure out how to test your ideas in the real world and what's the, the quickest way to to sort of get out there and, and try it out with real people rather than, than trying to say something that sounds kind of scientific so you have a lot of these uh, design thinking workshops and it's because they've been proven to really help companies and help how businesses are run and help people think then it's very it's a very rational decision to send an employee on a design thinking workshop but it's a very irrational decision 
to let them do anything with what they learn when they get back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have this thing where someone will go on like a week-long design thinking workshop and they'll, they'll do all these crazy exercises and stick post-it notes everywhere and then they'll get back to their office. Um, and they're not really allowed to use what they learned because their manager's not going to let them. They're going to look bad. They might get fired if they do something irrational, you know. And it's it's interesting because when you look at it, it's not design thinking is, by the way, it's it's a bit of a buzzword and it, it means slightly different things to different people. In fact, a lot of people will run design thinking workshops and just teach you a, a process because that is very logical and it's very easy for that to be accepted in a in a corporate office. Yeah. But back in the 1980s, there was something called um, it wasn't called evidence-based design. It was called evidence-based something. I can't remember, but it was the exact same thing. It was about like you're trying to design a product. You need to go out and, and run some like real world tests to sort of observe how people work and all this sort of stuff. Um, and people would go send staff on evidence-based design workshops and they would spend loads of money and they would all go out to these things and then no one would do anything with what they learned because you, you, it doesn't make sense in a, in a corporate office to, to, to be doing things slightly sort of irrational. And then before okay. that, it was so originally it was the, the whole concept sort of came from like I said Scandinavia was really where one of the places where design really originates the whole concept of having a design process or thinking like a designer um, and it was called Scandinavian cooperative design and then in the US they called it participatory design because cooperative sounds a bit sort of communist <laughs> you know they didn't really <laughs> like that in America so every generation has had this whole this kind of different different word for trying to oppose business thinking, trying to try, trying to make people think more like a designer in an office. But it, it doesn't work because the office doesn't work like that. Right. And if someone has a big corporate, someone has a big corporate job, you, you know, you've got a suit wearing job in a big office, I wouldn't even recommend it. I would say what you should do is you should go to work, you should make no decisions, you should touch nothing, and you should say lots of rational things. <laughs> make lots of rational comments to justify and whatever each other. But in your real life, when you get home and you want to try and make good decisions, the last thing you should do is use sort of rational arguments to make those decisions. <laughs> you really would want to be able to switch one off. <laughs> Coming coming back to you know the interesting point there you know this uh, the how we take emotional decisions is uh, majorly coming from how we as humans have evolved during the ages right so if you look at Darwin's natural selection and you know the theory of evolution it's it's those genetic codes which are embedded inside inside us which are forcing us to be more emotional in our decision making. But but as the society has grown and people have seen that rational decision making is is you know is a better way to conform to the society, that that's where these two parallel thoughts are conflicting, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So so what you're saying is that um, one of well, I, I mean the business example is perfect. That people will um, people will act rational whilst in an office because they need to conform to that. They don't want to lose their job. So it's very much about the the community um i think uh, the the survival of the fittest quote that you know charles darwin said survival of the fittest i think that's i think that's really interesting because with with humans survival of the fittest is that we have these insanely large brains we've just mm -hmm. developed these massive brains which sort of suggests that the way that we compete with with other humans is with our huge brains um uh, but you have to kind of wonder exactly why they've got so big because we don't need that big a brain to be able to escape the predators in our natural environment and you don't need that big a brain to work out how to get food to a certain extent for the survival of the species and the rest of things we, we probably need to be, be quite intelligent but survival of the fittest is a thing that Charles Darwin said and he's often quoted on, but that's not really the whole story of what he said. And and that wasn't mm -hmm. even that wasn't even that original an idea when when Charles Darwin was around. That was quite a common common belief, you know. I mean, he was a very religious person, as was a lot of people, and we believed that, uh, you know, I, I don't know what your belief system is or all your listeners, but you know, he was a religious person. So for him to say that was quite controversial. 
But what Charles Darwin went on to say was that actually quite the opposite of survival of the fittest, that sometimes it's not the fittest at all that survives, but the one that signifies strength the best. So if if I give you sort of an example, you might think of like uh, some deer with some big antlers or something, then how they decide which other animal they're afraid of and which one they sort of let do what they want. And then of course, how other deer decide who to mate with is based on the size of their antlers after a while, because that mm -hmm. becomes the, the thing that gets through their perceptive filters to tell them this deer is stronger than this and that they will provide better offspring and they will be better for our society and all that sort of stuff. But there's been supposedly been cases of animals going extinct because they get so crazy obsessed with their ridiculously big antlers or their ridiculously big, you know, who can make the biggest growling sound or the, you know, the beak that makes the best chirpy noise, which is the one that tells all the other animals in that species that this is, you know, the one that's in charge and this is the one that should create the most offspring, but actually isn't the strongest at all. <laughs> and so, and I'm, I'm actually quoting Rory Sutherland again here from, from the um, alchemy book, because he put it better than me. He said that, that it's actually the person, it's actually the animal with the best marketing department, not the strongest. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one that communicates the strength. But with humans, it's, you know, the strength that we've decided is the strongest is, is brain size. And that's why our brains have got so ridiculously, mm -hmm. so ridiculously big. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's a great example. I think the survive the fittest thing is a great example of people talking about what's easy to talk about. You know, it's a quote, it's a quote, you know, it's a one line thing that someone said once and it's easy to talk about. So we will keep bringing it up even if we don't completely agree with it. So in the in the 1970s, there was a guy called David Mech and he wrote this book and I can't remember what it was called, but it was about packs of wolves. It's about packs of wolves that he observed as observed in zoos and he noticed that there was a very aggressive male and a very aggressive female in the pack of wolves and that they were the ones in charge and everyone did what they said and he sort of coined this term alpha wolf and in in the sort of late 1970s and then early 1980s businessmen had this idea that they should be very aggressive and very loud and they would refer to them as alphas or alpha wolves or alpha males or alpha females yeah but very quickly, David Met came back and was like, whoa, that's not exactly what I said. And then much later, <laughs> he realized that he was completely wrong. Like he was observing animals in zoos and in the real, in, in the natural environment, animals, um, wolves don't actually stay in a pack, they stay in a family. And what he saw and thought was the alpha wolf male and alpha wolf female in the pack was just the mum and dad. <laughs> they were just being <laughs> aggressive with their cubs. The ironic thing... They, did, they, they destroyed humans, a complete generation. They destroyed <laughs> a complete generation. <laughs> but if you were in an office, especially in America in the 1980s, you might very well have a boss who was acting very aggressively because they'd read this one book that had been proved wrong almost instantly. And the term's sort of still around. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of weird. And the, the stupid thing is with humans, it's completely completely different uh humans if you're quite loud and aggressive you generally won't get much very far in life because people will you know the the community will not like you they'll like someone who's rational like you just said that's the, it doesn't make as much it doesn't even make that much sense but that's what we we consider to be a positive attribute for someone who we have in our group and we promote and have high up in our our hierarchies and not someone who's like loud and aggressive in fact Humans, um, like different primates, do have a, a hierarchy. Monkeys, bonobo monkeys, you know, stuff like that. They, they have a, a male that's in charge, typically. They'll have an alpha male. Um, but even then, that's not someone that's more aggressive. It's actually, it's actually the monkey that shows the highest level of empathy. So it's, again, just completely wrong. In uh, different primate species, generally the females have more empathy than, than the males. Mm -hmm. Go figure. They'll go around and help all the other monkeys out more. And then there'll be one male monkey who has like an incredible amount of empathy. And that's the one that they all protect and they all listen to. And that's the one who sort of dictates what the pack does. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not even that. I mean, if I was a monkey, it sounds like a bad job because they also have the highest stress levels because they've got to make all these decisions and everyone's reliant upon them. So they've got higher levels of uh, cortisol in their blood. That's, you know, we, we've acknowledged that about alpha monkeys. But the, the reason it's really interesting is because humans don't have that concept. If you look at a small tribe in the Amazon or something, there's no, uh, there's no like alpha human male in a in a human tribe. There's normally a group of elders who sit together and democratically decide if they're mm. going to the village or like what's going to happen. And it's it's very likely that that's because as soon as we learn how to to tie a sharp rock to the end of a stick, it didn't really matter how physically strong someone was. It mattered how many friends they had. <laughs> so, and, so very, and how long of a stick did he sell? <laughs> so very quickly we learn how to be friendly to each other, yeah. <laughs> and and I don't know, like conform to the the group, I suppose. I think even yeah. in a, in a bizarre sort of way, I think even the the days of kings and queens and 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 emperors, it was it was still quite democratic because if one king wanted to overthrow another king, it was all based on how many friends they had <laughs> and how sharp their sticks were. <laughs> Nothing to do with who was the, the physical strongest or, or the loudest or any of that sort of stuff. So to be, uh, to conform to the, the packs, hugely important. But this is, um, this is a really interesting thing. And I was just reading about this recently. There's a, there's a book called Elephant in the Brain by uh, Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen. And I've just finished reading it like pretty much a week ago. Absolutely brilliant. And it, it, it builds on that idea of the split brain. It talks about, okay, we've got the split brain and parts of your brain don't necessarily communicate with each other um, as well as we thought they did. We might potentially have different personalities in our brain at the same time that want to potentially do different things. Um, but they kind of built on it, and this is a bit philosophical, but this is something that quite a lot of psychologists now now believe, which is that maybe the reason that parts of our brain don't all communicate with each other is for these kind of democratic, how we fit into a group kind of reasons. Bear, bear with me a second. <laughs> that, some people refer to our conscious mind or, or part of our brain. We're not entirely sure how it works, but some people refer to it as the press secretary. And the idea is that if you're a politician, it's good to have a press secretary that doesn't know what's going on because they're better at lying. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're a politician and your press secretary has not been told the answer to, you know, they have to go out in front of the press and answer five questions about why, why did they decide this and this and this today. And mm. there could be perfectly good reasons for all of those things. But there might be a good reason that they need to lie to the press for on behalf of the politician. And I'm not saying this is a good thing in any way. But they might need to do that. <laughs> and if they don't know what the rationale behind any of those things is, then, mm -hmm. then there's no difference between the thing they're lying about and the thing they're telling the truth about. Because they're lying about all of them because they weren't kept informed. Right. So the theory is, and this is probably a theory which will never be taught, uh, never be proven, but I think it's fascinating to at least think about, is that maybe your conscious mind doesn't understand why you make decisions and has to make up mm. these very clever sounding rational reasons to keep the people around you happy, because then it can lie better. <laughs> sure. And you think about the ways that different animals, you know, survive of the fittest we talked about, you think about the ways that they compete in different ways. Maybe the ways that humans compete is by trying to outsmart each other with our lies. <laughs> and from a, from a design point of view or a psychology point of view, that makes our lives much harder, right? Because you need to be able to figure out people are lying continuously. <laughs> you need to find... For example, you need to find evidence of their behavior. You don't, you know, no psychology experiment yeah. is sitting people down and asking what they would do in a situation. You need to see them in the situation because the rationale they give you will not be true. And anyway, so the, the theory of some people is that the reason that we, we are so prolific at lying is because our conscious mind is never told the real reasons why we do things. <laughs> you, just, you know, you just made all the companies who do the focus group research and everything, you know, redundant. <laughs> <laughs> I, no matter I, what I, they do, they are lies. 
I can't believe we still have focus groups anyway. I mean, yeah. some of them still, <laughs> uh, my favorite one I heard recently was that the that Red Bull when they had their focus groups, everyone said it tasted horrible and they wouldn't drink it. <laughs> and yet Red Bull is now this massive. Whoever thought that they would compete with Coca Cola? You know, like massive. Yeah, right. Or the um. Like way back early in focus groups, there was the air on chair, which is the first kind of chair with like a mesh back. People mm -hmm. have these big padded chairs and everyone who saw it said, there's no way I would sit on that. It looks really uncomfortable and all that sort of stuff. I need mine to have big padding. And then it was the best selling chair ever made or something. And now all chairs are these mesh things. And <laughs> <laughs> focus groups are terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, then, then, the, then the problem for the designers is what to design and how to design when, you know, when the your evidence based designing, your design thinking, everything is, is gonna fall short. Because yeah. the the you the user itself is lying and he's not aware about why is he doing so. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, um you know, it's it, I suppose it's similar to psychology and that you, you never have an answer. You never really know. You, all you can do is do your best guess. And you're better off of course trying to, to watch what people are doing rather than ask what they're doing. Although talking to them is, of course, great. You also need to be looking for, 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 for tells. And you should be, ideally, be talking to people about, um, about their behavior and try and get them not to hypothesize about what they might do in future. I actually had a student recently. Um, I've got an online course and they messaged me and they said, I, you said to interview people about their mobile phones, but my friend doesn't have a mobile phone. So I decided to ask them about what phone they would have uh, in future what fun they will buy and why and I was like no you can't do that <laughs> you can't do that because they're gonna tell you they're gonna tell you about the values they want to have not the ones they really have and uh, okay. my example was that I'm I'm really into um, I'm, I'm slightly obsessive about trying to make a distraction free environment to, to work in I've, I've actually got these headphones I've ordered on Kickstarter which have EEG sensors in that read your brainwaves so you can see when you're getting distracted and I use a Pomodoro timer and all this sort of stuff <laughs> and if, if someone asked what phone I want to buy I would say that I want a phone which doesn't have any apps on it it's super simple because it's a distraction you know I would say I don't want it to be colored I want it to be have a long battery life and be you know, solid so that I can drop it. And I went, you know, I come up with all this stuff, but it's all lies because I've got this like ridiculous Samsung thing with a curved edge and it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cost is it's massive for no reason. And it costs like loads of money. And if, you know, if you ask me what I would do in future, you're just going to get lies. Whereas if, if you look at what I've actually spent my money on or my time on, then you, you get something slightly closer to the truth, maybe. Mm, and true. because of course you've always got people asking about what's easy um you, you kind of you you want to try and ask them the harder things if you go out um you have this every single round you have designers go out and interview the customers about their behavior and what sort of things they want to see and you always have someone say you know what people are too busy to use the the software people are too busy um you know, an example everyone knows, people are too busy to go to the gym or to cook food, you know, they just, they've got these busy lifestyles. And that's, that's always someone's, you know, gut, gut sort of knee-jerk reaction rationale for why they don't do things is always I'm too busy. Right. <laughs> if yes. someone says they're too busy, all they've told you is that they prioritize the whole bunch of stuff before that thing. I'm too busy to go to the gym means I want to do my work, eat some food, watch TV, <laughs> see some, yeah. <laughs> I want to do all of those things before I go to the gym. That's all I'm saying if I say I'm too busy. So one thing is to sort of ask more deeper pressing questions, but the other is to ask questions about people's uh, behavior, specifically about where they they spend money and time, you know, where, where those things go. Um, because I, I say I would like to be focused and productive when I'm telling someone what phone I might buy hypothetically in the future, but the amount of my day that I waste doing totally unproductive stuff is insane. There's a guy called Walt Gillette who used to work at Boeing. He was uh, in engineering and design and he was pretty, pretty high up. And, and he had this thing where he said they actively try and design or improve the design of the things that people can't articulate. 
He said they, they go and ask, you know, the focus group type scenario. They go out and ask people and everyone tells them the toilet's too cramped and they don't have enough leg room. And that's all, you know, they get through all of that. They listen to it all. And he says, yeah, we ignored all that. <laughs> and, then we, <laughs> and then we focused on the stuff they couldn't articulate. And it's stuff like getting the cabin pressure right. You know, you would never come up with that in a focus group. You would never even conceivably think that that was why you're uncomfortable. You would go, I'm uncomfortable. It must be the chair. And that's your sort of post-rationalized reason for being uncomfortable. But it could be that you're uncomfortable because of the air pressure and you couldn't explain that. So you thought of something else. And he actually did quite a lot of um, a lot of Boeing's designs were made in specific ways to make the cabin just look bigger than it was because mm -hmm. If you feel cramped in your chair, it might have nothing to do with how close the chair in front of you is. It might just right. be a raw feeling because of how the room is around you. So, yeah. I mean, another thing that I think's kind of been lost on designers, and it is because of how we, we adapt to our group at work, but one thing that's been lost is that people aren't necessarily looking for the stuff that people can't explain. <laughs> because it's totally, totally irrational to say to your boss, look, they all told us that the toilet was too cramped on the aeroplane, but we're going to mess around with the air pressure instead. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say that. And it's, yeah. when you look at some of the biggest companies of our time, they, they, they're all pretty irrational to begin with. Like, um, like Disney's doing Amazingly Successful, which was, uh, even once you get beyond the point that making a cartoon seems kind of irrational, the fact that they made these long feature length cartoons aimed at children who have no money you know? <laughs> and they spent years making them before they released anything like like disney was just so irrational but right. ended up with these incredibly successful things and i i personally believe apple were a bit irrational too i think um there's there's a big thing with marketing courses and business courses where they will do like case studies of businesses they'll get the business out and then they will post rationalize why some company was successful and they'll come up with people can come up with thousands of, of like rational reasons why apple was successful but i think at the end of the day people just it, it just felt personal to people and there was an emotional connection and it was probably more to do with their marketing than the products even at first you know right. <laughs> i think it was actually and a lot of the time designers will say well you know apple products just work they're really intuitive and i'm like no they're not they're so, <laughs> so <unintuitive. laughs> don't understand where that comes from like you i remember when i first went to university and i went to art college of course art and design college so all of the machines were macs because you know they were way trendier and they were colorful and you go to the library to use the Macs and every time someone sits down for the first time, they'll, they'll sort of ask the person next to them, where's the right click? I don't know how to right click on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the first things you need to do on the computer and you need to ask someone else. Like that's not an intuitive bit of kit. <laughs> and, and I actually think that, that part of the, the appeal of Apple is that it's a little bit irrational. People like, that. there's a thing to do with them. Um, with stories where actually people will get behind a story more if it's not if it's not true one of the things that that originally brought people together like in back you know cavemen times and stuff was completely irrational stories about magical animals and you know whatever stonehenge is about all that sort of stuff <laughs> it's really really quite irrational stories and it actually is a really powerful tool of of collaboration as well you know when we were talking about how people work together because if if you agree to to believe something that's slightly ridiculous with a group of people then you're you're kind of saying that you you trust them and you invest in them and and they can trust you and I know that sounds kind of weird there's a, a Chinese um, I shouldn't mention China to India, I know right now <laughs> I, you know, like the, the Emperor's new clothes right so yeah. The story of like some emperor buys some expensive clothes, but they're actually nothing there. And he goes out and some kid says, hey, that, why is that guy naked? And, you know, it turns out everyone was just pretending they could see clothes to keep him happy. There's, um, there's a Chinese version of that, which is a little bit different, which is that someone buys the emperor a, uh, a camel and he says, wow, what a magnificent horse. And then everyone goes, yes, yes, it's a magnificent horse. And the people who call them out and say, no, no, it's a camel, uh, get sentenced to death. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not 
It's not the nicest quote in the world, but the point is, if you're emperor, you want people around you that you can trust and who will have your back and like support you and stuff, even you know when you are being irrational and crazy. And people might form stronger bonds with people who are willing to share the same lies and same sort of fantasies as them, which I think is why, you know, groups of people who like sci-fi, for example, can be really close-knit groups because they that they're, they're, they're willing to, to sort of accept this that sci-fi is really really important together <laughs> and um, anyway so uh, yeah part of my point was that, that I think it's kind of part of the power of Mac is that part of the power of brands like that is because it's mm. it's quite an irrational decision I mean I remember buying my first one and it was so much more expensive than a, a PC and so I had to tell everyone it was better because I'm not admitting that I spent all that extra money and it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> same with me, same with me. You know, that, that's a fantastic point to put, you know, in a, and this conversation gets me thinking that uh, most of the decisions that I have made in my life have mostly been, you know, very, very irrational. And there might be emotional things behind it or whatever. But, uh, and then, you know, like my, my MacBook Pro, and to, to just to justify it, you know, I can go lengths and lengths and lengths and talk about it. But, you know, the, the Lenovo would have, have done the same job and, you know, twice the firepower that could have bought in the same price. You, know? <laughs> you can't say that. There's a great, I, I was, I was, just hearing about this the other day there was a guy that used to work at nintendo the guy who originally his name was yokoi i think something like that but he was he was one of the original designers at nintendo he invented like the original like game and watch and he was the one who originally thought we should go into games and he had a rule in meetings where he would intentionally come up with stupid ideas just to like put people at ease so they didn't have to play that like let's try and say rational things game so he would he would intentionally throw some crazy ideas in the room just to make everyone be like okay we can say what we think <laughs> and I, you know maybe that's part of their success i i had this i i heard this idea a while ago and i've used this before where you know if, if you say to someone let's go for lunch and you end up having a conversation for 10 minutes where they go, oh, I don't mind where we go, you decide, uh, we could go here, you know, and, and no one wants to make a decision. If you go, if you say, rather than say, let's go to lunch, if you say, let's go to McDonald's, then suddenly everyone has other suggestions. <laughs> because first of all, they don't want to go to McDonald's, unless they're children, they don't want to go to McDonald's. So they really, really quickly want to come up with other decisions or other options. But secondly, whatever they were thinking is better than what you just said. So, <laughs> and, and where do you want to go for lunch is, you know, it can never really be that rational decision. It's a really hard decision to make make rationally so so it's a, a good way of kind of bypassing all of that stuff <laughs> fantastic coming to coming to the closing remarks here Rob you know uh, you mentioned that you you do some certain design courses and you know how how could rational designs or irrational designs or emotional designs all about could you give us a brief on uh, what it's all about yeah so I've got um, I've got a, a design course on on Udemy and I've, I tried to make it quite broad. I wanted to cover a whole range of different topics to do with designing digital products. And it is largely around the fact that you need to bypass people's post-rationalizing. So there's a lot of exercises and a lot of talk around a lot of the stuff we were talking about, but a lot of exercises about how you can try and bypass the fact that people are lying to you. <laughs> how you can bypass it, how you can test it. And I'm, I'm trying to... I noticed a lot of online design courses, like I said about the design thinking courses earlier, they are very, they try and be very rational and give you a very formulaic process. But design is about creating new things. It's about innovation. So I don't want to do the teaching people to be cooks approach. I want to teach them to be chefs, you know, so I don't, I don't give people easy to follow recipes. I give them food for thought that you can chew on and perhaps make you improve your perception and see the world a bit bit wider to maybe make you make better decisions in your design and i suppose one of the reasons i chose that approach was because 
there's thousands and thousands of design courses online but they all seem to be saying the same thing about the you know this is the formulaic process this is you do this you do this and it's a very sort of process driven they they sort of make it sound like it is quite rational and almost an administerial kind of process and i i kind of figured most people who are taking online courses are taking two or three anyway so i'm going to really focus on trying to fill the gaps that other design courses i've seen were just really missing <laughs> and i think some of the stuff we were just talking about is exactly that the fact that you, essentially you're trying to figure out where someone's lying to you trying to get around it you're trying to design not necessarily for the things people can articulate easily and trying to identify those things and essentially trying to just improve your perception and see the world from a, a range of different views and i'm Fantastic. I've got a few online courses. I had that one out for about six months now, and I've had some really, really great feedback already. So it's doing, in all honesty, it's doing way better than I thought it would. I thought people were going to kind of hate it because I'm not always agreeing with the consensus from the community. So <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to be hated, but it's gone down really, really well. So, you know, I'm really happy. Thank you. I'm going to be, you know, for all of our listeners, I'm going to be posting the link to Rob, this particular course in our, um, in the in the link to the podcast. And there's a special discount link available for next week that can be, that can be taken for the Rob course. So Rob, just, just a closing remark. So we understand that there's nothing like rational decision making. And a lot of the growth that has happened in a lot of multinational companies has been irrational. But it has been all the case studies and the, all the dissection and uh, postmortem that happens is it made it look rational. Now the business schools which are which are teaching it is, is you know mostly how to be more rational in life rather than you know we know that we take decisions irrationally and it's mostly emotional basis. With that, with that, you know I'd like to thank you again, Rob, to be coming onto the show, and hopefully we will touch base with you come for another podcast when. Some other thinking psychologist topic comes in and which is able to add value to our listeners. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Sajid. It was, it was all our pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Brilliant. Thank okay. you very much. Bye. And I'm just...